take your scriptures and turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be looking at the last bit of that chapter today together. Last several weeks we've been working through chapter 13. This is a bit of a uh, transitional text for us. Starting in chapter 14, 15, 16, we now move into another section of Matthew. Many of you know Cary Grant. Some of you don't, and that's okay. Cary Grant told a story one time of how he was walking along the street and a man came up to him one day and he, and he looked at him in the face and he paused and Cary Grant looked at him and the man said, I know you. You're, um, you're uh, Rock Hudson. No, not Rock Hudson. You're, uh, and Cary Grant kind of had a little pity on him and he looked him in the face and said, Cary Grant. And the man looked at him and said, no, that's not it. It's uh, Sometimes people can see the real thing right in front of them, but not really see who that person is. Such is the case today in our text. Jesus is returning to his hometown of Nazareth, the hometown that he grew up in. They should know him. And yet, as we'll see here, They reject him. Turn with me to chapter 13, verse 53 in Matthew. And God's word says there, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Pray with me. Spirit, your word is so full, so pregnant. It has so much for us spiritually. Spirit, I pray that you will take pity on us today and feed us through the word. Take the cream off the top and give us spiritual nourishment this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We've just passed through oh, kind of a watershed in Matthew in chapter 13. That's there where Jesus teaches on the kingdom of God. The whole theme of Matthew, the major theme running throughout Matthew, the meta-narrative of Matthew is this coming, as I've called it, upside-down kingdom. 
where, where he brings his kingdom, the kingdom of God into the world. And it seems so strange that it seems upside down from the world's perspective, from our fleshly perspective. Many of the things that Jesus teaches, we chafe against. Why do we chafe against it? Why do we question it? Because our flesh sees things one way, and God says, no, it's actually this way. And so he's been fleshing out in chapter 13 what this kingdom of God is going to look like between his first coming and his second coming. And if you glance back up at verse 51 in that chapter, you see that at the end of these parables that he's given, he asks his disciples, have you understood these things? Have you understood that the kingdom is worth anything and everything that you have? the treasure and the pearl of great price. Do you really understand that the kingdom is is not going to be this thing that is huge, but it's going to start small and grow slowly but deeply? Do you understand that the kingdom is going to be hard to see in this world? This world is going to obscure the kingdom. And many times you're going to look and say, is the kingdom of God even really here? The parable of the weeds and the net. He's asking them, have you really understood that the kingdom is smaller than it seems? That there's going to be many seeds that are thrown out, that hit the soil, and some even sprout up, but not all are going to persevere to the end. Do you really understand these things, he's saying? And incredulously, in verse 52, they say yes, right? That's a pretty big yes. I mean, sometimes we struggle with those things. And here Jesus is saying, then the responsibility is yours to teach and live them. That's what he means when he tells them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out his treasures, that which is new and that which is old. Disciples, live and breathe these kingdom principles. Realize that you will experience these principles on a daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly basis as you live in this world between my comings. To understand that they are a spiritual lens through which we can make sense of this world when it doesn't make any sense. And beginning here, through chapter 16, there are eight encounters that test these kingdom principles. That's what we're going to look at in the coming weeks. These eight encounters that Jesus has with various people and individuals that is going to test these kingdom principles. And the first one is right here. involves the seed falling on a soil in Nazareth. A seed falling on hard soil in Nazareth. And we see this hard soil through the personal rejection that Jesus has here at Nazareth. It's a personal rejection. We've all felt rejection at one point or another in our life, either through a friendship or a relationship, a love, maybe even with a church, a job. Maybe you can think back to one of those, those rejections. 
I know I, I was thinking this week about a rejection uh, that I had about 20 years ago. Maybe some of you have told this story to, but I was seeking ordination in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church coming out of seminary. And they have you know, Hebrew exams and, and Greek exams and biblical exams and theological exams. And I went through all these exams and the last exam was to stand before presbytery, other pastors, and be orally theologically examined. So I went down to Boston and it was my turn to go up, stand there, and there were 80 pastors and they began peppering me with theological questions. First hour, second hour, third hour. Finally, I sat down and they voted to reject me. I remember going home. I, you remember this too. And I just flopped down on the bed and I had a huge lump in my throat and a pit in my stomach and I thought, what am I going to do? I, am, I went through seminary to this point, rejected. You can imagine the feeling there, but that's nothing compared to the rejection that Jesus is feeling here. Those men couldn't recall my name a month after they did that. These people knew him from childhood. And they reject him. Verse 53 and 54 tell us he went back to Nazareth from Capernaum about an 80-mile journey and he was invited to teach in the synagogue. That's common. Many times itinerant ministers are asked to preach and he, go, he goes in and, and he opens the scroll and reads from the scroll and then he sits down and teaches. That's the tradition in the, in the synagogue. And although there's disagreement on this, I think that this is actually the same time he visited Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, if you remember that. He goes back to Nazareth and he opens the scroll of Isaiah and reads. And they are outraged just like they are here. I think this is the same one, although there's chronology issues here. I think it doesn't make sense that Jesus would return after they tried to throw him off a cliff. I don't think that it makes sense that they would allow him to open up a scroll again in a synagogue after they tried to throw him off a cliff for blasphemy. So I think that this is the same encounter and he returns home there. And so we know that he goes into the synagogue and he unrolls the scroll and he chooses to read from Isaiah 61. And after he reads, they are astonished. Verse 54 here says that they were astonished because of his incredible wisdom and they're impressed by his miracles that he'd performed. Now, we don't know that he'd performed any miracles at Nazareth, but maybe they had heard about all the miracles in Capernaum or maybe some from Nazareth had traveled and seen the healing miracles there and they were impressed with Jesus. They were astonished. They were impressed. Lots of people today are impressed with Jesus, right? Lots of people today are, actually think Jesus, pretty highly of Jesus. They're impressed by his teaching. They're impressed by his life. They're impressed by his wisdom. A lot of the world uses biblical wisdom. They borrow from it. 
They're even impressed by the sacrifice he made for people on the cross. It doesn't matter if you're impressed with Jesus. What matters is, do you believe who he is? Do you understand who he is, the Son of God? Do you place your trust in him? Do you believe he's more than just an ordinary man? Do you believe he's the Son of God? And that's the roadblock that Nazareth's people ran into. They look at him and start remembering. They look at Jesus and they go, Isn't this the Jesus that skinned his knee on Jacob's steps? Isn't this the Jesus who, who used to play Red Rover, Red Rover, let Jacob come over in the streets with all the neighborhood kids? Isn't this the Jesus who built the chair for the Holtzman family that I sit in when I go and visit them? In other words, isn't this guy just the normal guy? That's what they're saying. Isn't this Mary's son? Aren't these his brothers? Isn't he just the carpenter's son? The people of Nazareth were a good example of good seed thrown on hard soil. They hear his wisdom and know his power. They have evidence right in front of them, yet they're blind. They reject him. And it gets worse. Look at verse 57. It says there, they took offense at him. The Greek word there, as I'm sure you've heard said elsewhere, is scandalizo. We get our English word almost directly from that, scandalized. They were scandalized. They were offended. They were outraged at what they heard. Well, I mean, if you... If, you, if this is the Luke 4 account, then we know why they are outraged. You can turn there if you like. I'm going to read it right here. This is what he turned to in red. He stood up in synagogue and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has announced me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover sight for the blind. To set liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a messianic text talking about the coming, the long-awaited snake crusher. And everybody knew it. And so they were expecting a wonderful homily on that. And what does Jesus do there? It says he sat down, they're leaning in, he's ready to teach on this to open this scripture up and he looks them in the eye and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Outrage. Blasphemy. No wonder they took him to the cliff to throw him off. And in this way, this text, this text of rejection is beginning to prepare us. Matthew is beginning to prepare us. He's giving us foreshadows of what is to come in Jesus' life. As we read earlier today on the overhead from John, we read together, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to that which was His own, and His own did not receive Him. 
They rejected him. Jesus came to the people that he loved to proclaim himself as their savior. He came to forgive them of their sin. He came to give them hope. He came to give them peace with God. He came to give them salvation. And yet they were outraged. They're so outraged that they didn't throw him off a cliff, but they nailed him to a tree. The single worst death in history. Why? Why such outrage? What is so outrageous about Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? Why does the world, and we're starting to feel it more and more in this country, have such animosity towards Jesus. We're offering them something wonderful, right? Why the outrage? Because in a way, whenever you present the gospel, what you're doing is you're giving that person a Nazareth moment. You're taking them to Nazareth and giving them that moment. 2 Corinthians 2.16 tells us that when we proclaim the gospel, to some it is the aroma of life, but to others it is the odor of death. There's two reactions that happen when you present the gospel. In other words, in some it will always produce outrage. Because the gospel says that you're not a good person. You're not intrinsically good. By, by sharing the gospel with somebody, you're saying you're, you're not good. And that produces outrage in people. When you share the gospel, you're telling people that you're not capable of living a good life in the eyes of God. Do you realize that? And that produces outrage. When you're sharing the gospel, you're saying you need forgiveness for your sins. And most people go, sins? What do you mean? And it produces outrage. When you share the gospel, you tell them that there's no way to earn salvation. There's no way to earn it. It has to be a gift received. Because when you tell people the gospel, you're telling them that, that their sins, there is a, a payment for, and that payment is death. And if those sins are in, in, not in some way paid for, in some way atoned, you're headed for spiritual death. A place that we call, not heaven, but hell. And that, that produces outrage. Because in the gospel, you're telling them that they need a savior outside of themselves. And when we share the gospel, we tell them that savior is Jesus. Because he lived the perfect life you can't. And he paid the penalty for sin on the cross. He felt the full wrath of God. In his body, by dying on that tree and raising again on the third day, conquering death and sin. 
And when you tell people that, to some it is the aroma of life. I pray that you have had that experience where you share the gospel and they go, I need that. But I know that if you're like me, you've had many more experiences where people smell death and they're outraged. Every part of the gospel is intended to bring a person to their Nazareth moment, either outrage or belief, pride or humility, hard heart or soft heart, rejection or acceptance. And in this Nazareth moment, the people rejected Jesus. But that didn't surprise Jesus because he anticipated this rejection. He anticipated this rejection. First Peter 4.12 tells us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials that come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That's a word for us. We shouldn't think it's strange when we feel that outrage, when we share the gospel. We should never be surprised about rejection. Because it's the pattern that Jesus has set down for us. And Jesus knew he was going to be rejected because it was the pattern that was set down for him. You remember later on in Matthew when he's going into Jerusalem and he pauses the final time he's going into Jerusalem before he's crucified. And he looks out over Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones all who are sent to it. He knew he was going in that same processional, rejected wherever he went. And so we see that in verse 57 here, when he looks at the people and he says to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, in his own household. A statement of rejection. Our modern equivalent is familiarity breeds contempt. And there's some truth to it. When people are familiar with you, they find it much easier to discount what you say. I remember when I'm with pastors, sometimes we we talk, and sometimes it's easier for a congregation to hear from another minister a truth that their own pastor cannot get through. It's often difficult to accept a community leader or a respected individual or official that you grew up with. And so Jesus is warning them, don't let your familiarity with me, don't let that you know where the skin on my knee was taken off, be a barrier to seeing who I am. Be careful that your familiarity does not become an unnecessary barrier to me. It's very interesting. We see this, this principle kind of working out in Jesus' mother's life, don't we? Mary. We see early on that she is visited by this angel. She's told that she is, is pregnant even though she's a virgin. And she believes it. And she's told that she is carrying the long-awaited Messiah. And she believes it. She sees the Magi come. Worship. Take him to the temple. Anna comes up to her and, and, and gives this great prophecy of the Messiah. But perhaps living day by day with Jesus, 
month by month, year by year, a barrier of blindness was built in in Mary's life. We see that in Mark chapter 3 when they come to get Jesus because and take him back to Nazareth because they think he's out of his mind. They think he's crazy. John 7 tells us that they didn't believe who Jesus was. Now they came to faith afterwards, but during his lifetime, they did not believe. Only after his resurrection did they believe. Perhaps their familiarity with Jesus bred a little distrust in who he was. And that can happen to us so easily, brothers and sisters. Kids of the church, it can happen to you very, very easily. Why? Because you're growing up in the church. You're hearing the gospel every week. And you hear the gospel week in and week out. Pray that it does not numb you to the power of the gospel. Pray that you do not become casual with the gospel. Don't let KBC just become another event. I know it doesn't make sense, but it can happen. By sitting and hearing the gospel week after week, month after month, you can become numb to it. Adults, happens to us. Don't let your duration with Jesus Drain your passion. Don't let Sunday school just become another hour in your day. Work and pray that worship will become the highlight of your week, the way it was when you first became a Christian. Do you remember that? How you looked forward to it? And now we have trouble keeping our eyes open? Don't allow years of hearing Jesus' perfect obedience, his loving sacrifice, and his powerful resurrection numb you, lull you into apathy. And because that can happen. We all need to pray each week that the full force of the gospel softens our heart because the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. In other words, the gospel is going to do one of two things to your heart today. It's either going to soften you and you'll lean into Jesus and you'll love him that much more or You won't. Just because you're here, it doesn't mean that the gospel is going to circumcise your heart. Hebrew 3 warns us, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, daily, As long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. 
Brothers and sisters, we have to remain alert. That familiarity with the gospel of Jesus Christ does not become a barrier to us. There's a book that I gave out years ago. Maybe some of you that have been here for years remember this. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. It's a wonderful book. I read through it this week, booklet. And it's a story about, a fictitious story about Jesus walking through the heart of a new Christian. And he walks into the different rooms. He walks into the, the work room where, where your, your works, good works are made. He walks into the dining room that, that represents your appetites and he talks about the appetites of a Christian. And in one room, he walks into the living room. And I want to read that to you. It says, we walked next into the living room. The room was rather innate, uh, intimate and comfortable. I liked it. It had a fireplace, overstuffed chairs and sofa, a quiet atmosphere. It all seemed so pleasant. Jesus said, this is indeed a delightful room. Let us come here often together. It is secluded and quiet and we can fellowship. Well, naturally, as a young Christian, I was thrilled. I couldn't think of anything I would rather do than to spend hours with my Savior. He promised, I will be here early every morning. Meet me here, and we'll start the day together. So morning after morning, I would come downstairs to the living room, and he would take a book of the Bible off the bookcase. He would open it up, and we would read together. He would tell us of the riches and the unfolding truths it had. He would make my heart warm as he revealed his love and grace he had towards me. These were wonderful hours together. But little by little, under the pressure of many responsibilities, this time began to be shortened. I don't know why, but I thought I was just too busy to spend time with Christ. It wasn't intentional. It just happened that way. Finally, not only was time shortened, but I began to miss a day now and then. It was examination time at university, after all. Then there was some other urgent emergency. I would miss it two days in a row, often more. I remember one morning when I was in a hurry, rushing downstairs, eager to be on my way. I passed the living room. And the door was open. I looked in. I saw a fire in the fireplace and Jesus sitting there. Suddenly, in my dismay, I thought to myself, He's my guest. I invited him into my heart. He has come as Lord of my home. And yet here I am, neglecting him. Sometimes Jesus is not without honor, except in our own hearts. Lastly, we see the results of rejection. Look at verse 58 with me. Verse 58, he says, And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now read closely. It doesn't say, did, could not do, it says did not do. There's a big and, different, big and important difference there. 
Jesus was not somehow limited because he didn't have enough faith around him. Jesus chose not to perform many miracles there. I think there's a biblical principle here at work. One that he taught taught us back in chapter 7, verse 6. There we read, Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw pearls before pigs. See, there's an element of prudence and discrimination in the Christian life. There's an, there's a, a, an appropriate prudence, wisdom, and discrimination in the Christian life. This is true of generosity, right? We are to be radically generous people. Generous beyond what the world thinks is even rational. Yet, there does come a time, and even our generosity, if it is ignored or unappreciated or something, where we pull back. It's true of our witness, too. We share the hope we have within us continually and constantly. Yet if it is consistently rejected and mocked, there is a time where we shake the dust off our feet. Now, brothers and sisters, this takes a large amount of wisdom and patience that goes beyond normally what we would. But Jesus here is perfectly wise and he responds to Nazareth's unbelief and chose not to perform many miracles there. You see, Christ acts when we are living faithfully. Christ acts when we are living faithfully. Not always. Sometimes, as we learned this morning in the Bible Project, he is faithful when we are failures. Jesus, as a matter of fact, performed many, if not most, of his miracles in the context of faithlessness. In fact, the greatest act he had, he ever did going to the cross was done in the context of great faithlessness, right? But the principle Matthew wants us to understand is God acts as we walk in places where we need his support. Listen to that again. God acts as we walk in places where we have to have his support. Imagine you're standing on the brink of the Grand Canyon and out before you is a narrow planked bridge and it goes all the way across the canyon and it's swaying in the wind and standing next to you is the architect of that bridge and he holds the plans in his hand. And he asks you, he turns to you, he says, do you trust that bridge? You reply, yes, I believe in you. I believe the bridge can hold my weight. But trust doesn't stand on the brink and not move. Trust begins to walk across that bridge. Trust is when you step out onto the bridge and begin walking across that chasm. Christ can only come through for you as you step out in areas where you need his support. If you stay knowing you're okay, faith cannot work its way out. You need to step out on the bridge. You need to step out on faith. 
Perhaps there are areas in your life right now where you need to step out in faith. I don't know what they are. For teachers, it might be speaking about things that you're forbidden to speak about. Be wise, but don't be quiet. It takes a step of faith for Jesus to support you in that, doesn't it? Maybe you're contemplating a major change in your life or a new job or career. Until you step out, Christ can't support you in that. Those of you going to college next year, you're going to have plenty of opportunities to step out in faith. Step out. He's got you. Perhaps there's some decision in the life of your family with an unknown outcome. Maybe you've been praying about sharing with a coworker. You need to step onto the bridge to experience Christ's faithfulness. Many of you know the name Harriet Tubman. She's experienced great faithfulness of God because she stepped out so much. There's a great movie, by the way, that was just made about her life that I think shows this side of her. For eight years, she led scores and scores of, of slaves along the Underground Railroad free. And that was a dangerous thing to do. If you were caught, you were killed. And it's portrayed in the movie really well, where she would be being pursued by, by, by a, a capture gang or didn't know which way to go. And she would stop and she would pray. And then the Lord would tell her which direction to go in, left or right. In her own words, she gave credit to God, explaining, "'Twasn't me, twas the Lord. I always told him, I trust in you. I don't know where to go or what to do, but I expect you to lead me.'" And he always did. Brothers and sisters, standing on the brink, standing on the edge, you will never experience Christ's faithfulness. You have to place your foot where you have to depend on Christ to support it. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Spirit, I thank you for the action that you have produced in our hearts. In Christ, I thank you for, you, for your sacrifice, giving us a way to be in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.